This episode is sponsored by Interactive Brokers, and I want to tell you about Interactive Brokers' simple IBKR global trader app, which makes investing in stocks and options easy. Invest in stocks and options worldwide and access cryptocurrencies all on a single unified platform. And you could use fractional shares to invest in the stocks you want, regardless of the price, and put even small cash amounts to work. You can scan the globe for undervalued stocks and identify new investment opportunities by comparing global stocks in the same currency. Plus, make deposits in up to 27 different currencies and automatically convert into the currency you need. And the best part? Enjoy zero commissions on U.S. stocks and ETFs with no inactivity fees or account minimums. Put the world in the palm of your hand. Start investing today at ibkr.com slash global trader. That's ibkr.com slash global trader. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. We got conflict in the Middle East and oil prices are on the rise. Bond prices, on the other hand, not so good as yields are rising as concern for inflation grows. And we have two great guests, two for the price of one today. Robbie Miles from Allianz Global Investors and our old friend Das is back. All this and much more on episode number 838 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Hey, it's Andrew Horowitz, and thanks for joining me this week and every week on the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Make sure to do me a favor and tell your friends. If you're liking what you're listening to, if you're spending the time each and every week, you know, listening to the good information that we're providing, the great guests that we have, and we have some great ones lined up today as well, tell some people about it. Why not? Make sure their life is better because of it. And that's what my aim is, to make sure that your financial life is better for listening to this particular podcast. So we're going to spend only a couple of seconds talking about what's going on because much of it is really not great news, but be more so because we have two guests and I want to make sure we get them both on today and really get into a, a deep discussion and not have the show go on for three or four hours. But yes, we do have this conflict, this war, this terrorism, whatever you want to call it in the Middle East, which is not only horrible and, and, and just deplorable and just, just, just everything about it is just despicable. The fact is we're seeing it spread out and more division about religion and people and places and politics. And the markets are feeling the kick from it. Not terribly in the beginning of the week. It was surprising when we heard of this over the weekend and futures were down on, well, they were down pretty good on uh, Sunday night when they opened. But then lo and behold, markets you know, shrugged it off. Maybe it was because a lot of the programming that was done with regard to algos and hedge funds, looking at a lower rate would be better for stocks. And because the safety trade was being picked up on at that time and players were investing in bonds, driving the rates down, right? You know, that's that's what happens. 
It was an interesting situation. Some of that caught up towards the end of the week as yields rose again. And uh, we see that the CPI and PPI that came in were a little bit hotter than expected. The other thing that we did notice on the other side of that was that there was a good bit of Fed talkers downplaying the opportunity of significant raises, even though there was this inflation involved. And towards the end of the week, the good news was that we saw the Michigan confidence come out, uh, you know, in good shape, but there was still concern about the forward inflation numbers. That was a big issue inside of that report. And then finally, to close it out, we saw that banks came out, particularly JP Morgan and a few others, came out with some decent numbers, I would say, that surpassed expectations. And that wouldn't be too hard right now because there are some dire expectations when it comes to the banks not able to produce earnings due to a number of different issues. Taking write-downs with their bond holdings, looking at the yield curve and saying it's not as profitable to lend out, looking at the fact that um, investment banking has slowed down a bit and all the things that go on with the consumer. But lo and behold, J.P. Morgan, once again, the star in this area is doing great a great job of producing better-than-expected earnings, maybe still down from where they were a year ago and two years ago, but better-than-expected and being rewarded for it in the markets. So a lot of, of moving parts right now. Earnings season is beginning, and we're going to see more regional banks come out next week and the several weeks to come. Then we hit the technology companies and seeing if some of this euphoria over what is going on as a, as, as a place to hide out and also the the opportunity to participate in the AI you know, rage is anywhere even close to a reality. That's going to be happening over the next several weeks, something to watch for in this composite of a time when we have a significant amount of seasonality benefiting us, particularly towards the end of October through the end of the year. Something to consider, something to think about. If you want to get the show notes, more information about the things that uh, we talk about here, just go over to thedisciplinedinvestor.com and uh, snoop around a little bit. Click on a button or two. Look at the drop downs. You know? All right, with that, let's get to our first guest and get this show on the road this week. It's going to be a good one, I think. So let's bring on uh, Robbie Miles. He's a CFA and ACA, he's a portfolio manager in the global thematic equity team over in uh, London. He's a portfolio manager over at Allianz, by the way. He's been there over 12 years. And um, he's the lead portfolio manager in two global strategies, the positive change and food security, which frankly is a, is a pretty important thing these days in terms of um, inflation, I assume, also. So we're going to get into that discussion and uh, also run the Global Sustainability Fund. So all those things obviously have a major impact um, on 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 investing these days and of course what's going on around the world in terms of inflation and not to mention probably something to do with uh, many of the food companies and the areas that you discuss are maybe even impacted by some of the crazy diet stuff. So, so Robbie, Hey, welcome back. You were on some time ago. Uh, really enjoyed our discussion then. So uh, welcome back to the show that, uh, this week. Hey Andrew, really awesome to be back. Last time I was on, I had a few friends reach out to me and say they heard me on the TDI podcast. So you have a far reach even here in the UK. Oh, there you go. And you're tenacious, <laughs> tenacious with your production. <laughs> Appreciate it. You know, let's, let's, I think let's set the stage um, because those that maybe didn't listen, listen before, but 
tell me what it means to be involved in the global thematic equity team. Yeah, it's a combination of finding the most compelling and durable investment themes over quite a long time horizon, and then rifle shooting via bottom-up stock picking the best companies that express the growth potential of those themes. Uh, we have a number of standalone, dedicated, specific thematic funds. And then I've actually just moved on to the Positive Change Fund, which amalgamates the best of those underlying themes uh, and adds a couple more. And um, yeah, it's this kind of best-in-class way of getting that long-term thematic exposure. And I would say that some of those themes have a, a kind of a human flourishing angle to them in the sense that, you know, humankind is trying to improve its social, its environmental um, conditions. And the enablers of that positive change are the kind of thematic beneficiaries that we're looking to find in our team. Now, is this an offshoot of the ESG concept of investing where we're trying to find, you know, the, the is this a component of ESG or is this, is this uh, an offshoot? Or, or something totally different. <laughs> I could give you the the like the the fairly um, comprehensive answer there by by just giving a little background of, of the evolution of sustainable investing, if that's helpful. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. So even back by the time of, of the South African apartheid, uh, but then definitely after the global financial crisis, there was a small and very motivated group of people particularly religious endowments, which are actually multi-billion endowments, that were very focused on the negative aspects of companies. And they were keen to exclude those companies from their investment portfolios. Around 2015, that evolved into what was called integrated ESG, ESG standing for Environment, Social and Governance, which is really got this positive flywheel of widening the, the lens of the research scope, and then that informing how you are a good steward of those investments, meaning how you engage and how you vote the proxies of those companies mm -hmm. to create this positive flywheel where the, the better relationship you have with those underlying businesses, the better the research, which means you have a more nuanced relationship, et cetera, et cetera. So actually, I, I never found the exclusionary aspect of sustainable investing very compelling. But the integrated ESG stuff, I think, I think was much better. Where we are today is that we're back to looking at the products of these businesses, but instead of looking at the negative aspects of them so as to exclude them, we're really focused on the potential of those products to enhance humans' lot and to see whether they are cohesive with the kind of societal structures in which they operate. Now, there's been a lot of criticism of sustainable investing generally, and I think some of those criticisms are valid because maybe some corners of the capital markets have, have allowed their moralistic tendencies to creep in, uh, and, and they haven't really been grounding all of their investments in first principles to, to kind of define what is actually sustainable, what, meaning what is actually going to persist for a, for a very long time horizon, what mm -hmm. is going to be financially sustainable. Um, so answering back to your question, Andrew, our, our team is very focused on this kind of latest generation of 
of sustainable investing, where we're focused on what the companies do, not just how they do it, what the companies do in the context of society, because we have the view that companies that compound shared value, which is a concept from Michael Porter, Michael Porter shifted from his focus on five forces, how strong is your moat, to instead, how much shared value do you create? Do you, do you create? How much of a win-win mindset do you have? Which, which is a, which is a very, which is a very is, different mindset, right? You know, from moat to open, you know, that's, that's open gate versus moat. Right, exactly. It's open gate. And I think that open gate mentality, ironically, might be better over the long term, uh, especially when it's when it's solving a, a real societal need. So I'd say that we're not particularly moralistic in our framework, but we're very grounded in these first principles, which can allow us to invest in companies where where capital has been starved. So so I think, again, one of the criticisms of sustainable investing is there's been crowding into expensive, popular companies. We aren't trying to worsen that problem, but, but be willing to be different from the crowd, the, to be different from the crowd, not overpay for those investments. Yeah. But yes, there is still a a sustainable aspect to to that, to those themes that we're picking. Let me tell you, uh, just to take you back somewhere and to give you some insight, you know, the first time, I don't know if I've told you this, but the first time I heard about ESG, do you know how I learned about ESG? I was, no. I was, um, invited to one of these luncheons that I never go to. And it was uh, at one of my favorite steak joints. I'm like, well, okay. Somebody wants to pay for my lunch for steaks. I'm now I'm thinking about it, but I said, uh, I'm not going to go. But then I looked at them like, what, what is this ESG thing they're talking about? Everybody's starting to talk. All right, you know what? Let me listen to what they have to say. It was actually a luncheon by Allianz, who was one of the first to identify the whole ESG uh, concept, create all sorts of, uh, I would say indicators, indices, benchmarks for this ESG thing. I was very confused back then, by the way, what the whole point was. But I tried to at least understand it. And I think what's happened over the years and why people are upset about this, it's like anything else. Now, it may have been created with a maybe a touch of moralistic uh, attitude to it, right, that we could find what's the best and makes us feel good and all the good stuff with that, right, you know. Um, but I think what happened is it got – as usual, it got bastardized into companies that were, you know, heavy polluters just buying carbon credits and that would look good on their ESG score. So now all of a sudden you got this horrific company that's maybe poisoning wells and clean water, right? You follow what I'm saying? That maybe has a great ESG score because they're, they found a way around it and they were able to promote it as such. Therefore, the whole inclusion in the ESG became a bit farcical. I think that's where people are pissed off. I think, think it's fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's been a focus on how companies operate and the elephant in the room is that really it's what companies do. That's way more important. So I think that's, again, that's where we are right now is there's a little bit of a shift back to, to what these companies are doing mm -hmm. and, and sustainable investing is, only meant to augment the fundamental investing discipline. It's it's not meant to override it and be to revolutionary different. It's an evolutionary improvement, ideally. So I think I think some of these criticisms are valid, and hopefully it'll just mean there's a shakeout of of those actors that that um, aren't 
contributing to that positive evolution of the investment discipline. So I don't mean to beat this horse, but I just want to kind of finish this up with one point here. When it comes to sustainability, particularly when with regard to, we'll call it, well, it doesn't really matter. It, it's to be energy, it could be food, whatever the whatever that is, right? The greenwashing that goes on. Does your team have an ability? Is there a way to kind of say, oh, I see what they're doing here, right? And they're really not... Uh, a target to be included for whatever reason. I'm just I'm making this all up, right? You know, but is there a way that you can kind of see through? Because companies can be pretty crafty. I think that's more of a problem when you're looking at the how a company operates. Mm -hmm. But when you're looking at what they do, I think it's much easier. So I sometimes think about the concept of energy returned on energy investment. So one one very um, specific theme within electric vehicles is is the shift to silicon carbide, uh, which is mm. more energy efficient than the, the the silicon that it's replacing. So there's, it's very difficult to greenwash because you can just inherently see that this, this product is going to save energy, it's going to save money, it's going to save emissions. It's very simple. The question is the price at which you buy those companies and the amount of money they're going to have to spend to realize that, that the, the, the scale of those silicon carbide uh, products and does that overall equation leave upside in the investment? So it's actually a little bit simpler when you when you look at just the products of what the companies are doing and, and use first principles. Um, we don't have to worry so much about greenwashing. So what, let, let's talk. I, I would think that if we're talking about sustainability, it's a lot of a lot of subsets of, of sustainability, right? We want to make sure we have for the future. I guess that's the isn't isn't that really the the bottom line of all this, right? That whatever it is that we need now, we have for the future. That's the whole point of sustainability, right? Totally. Meeting yeah. the needs of the of the present without jeopardizing the needs of the future generations. And, and the needs are hardcore. It's not like, you know, I need a massage in the future. You know, <laughs> that's not the need. We're talking about things that are requirements for daily life, you know? And well, energy, we can argue a little bit, but okay, food is definitely up there. So, on, in the big schema, is is the focus and in, in the importance? Um, I mean, I'm assuming there's a good amount of money in both energy sustainability, food sustainability. Is is there? First of all, have you identified some real core sustainability concerns when it comes to food? Number one, number two, switching over to energy. Um, you know, our desire to move to a cleaner burning fuel for you know, pick your poison of what you're, what you're operating, whether it's a car, whether it's heat in a house, whether it's a manufacturing facility, whether it's travel, whatever, right? That's, that's there's a lot of energy that, that is involved uh, from the dirty coal to, you know, uh, oil to um, other, other things into whether it's wind, maybe nuclear, whether it's um, electric cars. Um, what's more important, the, the food sustainability or the energy? I think Maslow's hierarchy of needs is quite helpful. You've got the physical, physiological needs at the base. That's your shelter, nutrition, clothing. And then you've got the safety needs, which is kind of healthcare and, and physical safety. And then you've got belonging needs, which is more like, you know, that, that innate desire for us to feel connected to our tribe. Um, focusing on the base layer, I think not many people talk about how fantastically we're doing as a human race. 98 the, the, the starvation rates are down 98% in the last 100 years. Mm. Poverty has halved in the last 20 years. So 
you know, there's definitely room for improvement and there's huge amounts of opportunity there. But I think it's useful to just frame it that we're doing a fantastic job at this stuff. Um, within food, we look at some of the trends going on within nutrition. We look at the efficiency of the food supply chain. And then upstream, we look at some of the technologies that are, that are making agriculture more efficient. And again, increasing the energy return on energy invested because the energy return is the grain and the energy invested is the tractors and the fuel. Farming has a problem of an aging population and any aging workforce. And there's actually real shortage of people that, that have the skills to do that farming. So some of these tractor companies are now designing a complete autonomous fleet that can plow, plant, weed, fertilize, harvest those fields, all with the press of an on button and, and a very sophisticated software and, and hardware solution behind it. So I think there's there's huge opportunity there. Um, generally, I think we probably have to produce 50% more food by 2050 because of more people having richer diets. I think that's probably going to be true even in the context of GLP-1, which is potentially suppressing the appetites on the margin of people in the Western world today. But the, the increase in the food consumption is going to come from developed markets and increasing prosperity there. So generally, the, the way we identify those opportunities is by looking at the, the margins and the returns on investment, trying to find high margins as a indicator of where, where problems are really being solved, combining that with this, this first principles thinking. Hmm. That's going to be, yeah. that's, no, it's fascinating. I mean, I love the autonomous farming situation. Of course, I mean, we're talking about autonomous driving for that matter. We're talking about electric vehicles, you know, all, all these kinds of things that blend into each other. I mean, we're hysterical over here about the, the, the various diet drugs that's going to change the world and everybody's going to stop drinking and stop eating and, you know, everybody has to buy new clothes and, you know, the, the, the way of, of the bars are all going to close down, you know, <laughs> McDonald's might as well just toss in the towel now. Um, but let's also bring back the reality of this. this is a big cost factor with it. And um, like you said, a lot of places in the world are not as, let's just say, well-fed as some of us in the West. And of course, in your country, England, uh, we, we, you know, we have a little bit of extra poundage on. And uh, that's a whole different story than what you, when, you, when you go around the world, you know, Africa and, and, and a lot of, uh, of Asia. Um, it's a whole different body structure there requiring a lot more more food but I also want to talk to you though about um this this energy transition and you know what's going on there's a lot of 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 ideas that have been bantered around of what is you know what's the best way and what can be done and you know where are we from this and you know the 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 idea of of utilizing um what form of energy, but, but before we do that, just hang on a second. I just want to break for a second. Uh, and I want to break for a, a quick mention of interactive brokers. I want to talk to you about interactive brokers because interactive brokers, clients earn up to 4.83% on their uninvested instantly available USD cash balances. In fact, you need to ask yourself how much interest is your broker able to pay you interactive brokers, prudent, and conservative risk management uniquely positions IBKR 
to pay you far higher interest. And that's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks, options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Visit ibkr.com slash interest rates to learn more. All right, we're back with Robbie Miles, and we're talking about sustainability and and the idea of um, you know investing in good companies with what they do, not you know not, not how they do it. It's, it's it's kind of looking at the result, right? Isn't that what we're saying, Robbie? Exactly. So yeah. so energy, you know, energy. You bring up we got wave power. We got that that seemingly is is is. It looks really cool, but doesn't really work well. We got wind power. Actually, there was a wind turbine, I think, that was in a typhoon um, last week or so. I think it was in, I want to say it was China, but I don't remember exactly where it was. That it just, they kind of just said, okay, let it rip. And uh, usually they lock it down, they change the fan angles, and they kind of make sure it's, it, but it, it, it was powering enough power one day for like 170,000 homes. <laughs> you know, the typhoons came in and just, it went crazy. The problem, though, is that many of the older ones from various companies are, are needing an, in desperate repair, and it's very costly. It's not like just you know cl- changing a blade is very costly. Then you got nuclear, which everybody's you know scared scared of. What 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 are you looking at from your team as where the best opportunities are into the future? Maybe uh, twofold from from the the final product to maybe the components that go into it. There's two parts. Totally. So, Andrew, the way that we tend to approach these topics, we start from the very, very big picture and we narrow it down to the specific company. So starting with the very, very big picture, we've spent $4 trillion on the energy transition to date. Wow. And I think I'm right in saying that fossil fuel supply and demand is higher today than it's <laughs> ever been before, higher this year. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? I mean, seriously. That is, remember, we, you remember peak energy? I mean, peak, peak oil? And that just dissipated. Then it went down, and now all of a sudden, we're back. In, in 1956, Shell Oil Company wrote a, a, a kind of prediction energy forecast paper that had nuclear being like 96% of energy supply by this year. Um, so one thing the fossil fuels companies have done extremely well is preventing that from happening uh, the the anti-nuclear lobby has been has been really successful i think to the detriment of, of of human flourishing but yeah i mean i think again on the big picture just to acknowledge that climate change is a is still a very contentious topic i've had fantastic discussions with with climate skeptics and i, I tend to disagree with them on the climate science i do land on the view that that is that is kind of with the the majority, I know that the majority doesn't necessarily mean they have a mon- monopoly on the truth, but I tend to think that humans are causing climate change and that it's a risk. I think eight of the top warmest years on record have all, have all been since 2015 and 2023 is on track to be the warmest. And and I think it probably is a, is a major threat. The question is, what do we do about it? Um, there's There's been a real focus on the tax and subsidy tool, but not a lot of scrutiny on what might be the cause. The, the superficial cause is obviously we're burning fossil fuels. But when we think about central banks front-loading energy demand by printing lots of money today and governments front-loading energy demand by creating huge amounts of debt, that, that contributes to the amount of fossil fuels we're burning today. 
and, and maybe maybe we should think about the hard questions there. Um, wait, wait, I, I'm, I'm, also, I'm a little lost, sir. I'm sorry. Can I just ask you a question yeah, about that? The yeah. central banks are front-loading energy consumption. That's what I think is what you said um, by printing money. Let's just stay with that one for a second. Are or what you is? It, it, let me just make sure I'm clear what you're saying, and then if I'm not, just kick me in the teeth and <laughs> correct me. Are you saying that due to the fact that we are providing all these central banks are providing insane amount of stimulus, it's creating in, 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 an incredible amount of ability for people to spend and do and go. And that in itself is um, the, the idea that we are flourishing is causing a higher energy demand. Is that basically what you're saying? Yes. Okay. Yeah. I'm saying that money is a, is a kind of, is a proxy for energy. Okay. I got you. That we, makes sense. We, with that money, we can spend energy. Exactly. All right, it's not the going into the energy. It's just the, the, the byproduct of having more is that we're doing more. I mean, that's the bottom line of that. Yeah. So, okay, I got you. That's it. Yeah, so, 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 so where do we go from I think from that here? doesn't get a lot of scrutiny. Well, so where do we go from here? I think we need to acknowledge that it's like we're living in a room where we've got the heating turned on and rather than t turning the heating off, we turn the air conditioning on as well to yeah. cool it down and we yeah. leave both running and it's a very inefficient way of achieving room temperature. Mm. Um, so what we don't have is a law that says you can't pollute your neighbor's property through via climate via emissions. So probably what we need is for the climate change argument ad advocates to have their evidence scrutinized in a court of law. And if it's found that indeed this is a tort law violation, there needs to be some sort of easement. So so people would pay for one ton of carbon to be sequestered for every one ton they emitted. That would be a very cheap way of solving climate change. No one really talks about that. Instead, we have very arbitrary taxes and subsidies which change, create incredible amounts of uncertainty and frankly, wasted capital. Um, so so I, I would change that, but that's not easy. Wait, wait, wait. So how do, you, thing, how do you, what court of law is going to, what, law, what court of law can actually have jurisdiction because by the way, the court of law does not exist right now, right? The UN doesn't have taxing power on on nation member nations, right? There's no, there's no. The IMF doesn't have taxing or or, or penalty powers uh, or criminal powers against nations, right? I mean, they can cut them off and stuff like that, but there's no like, okay, you know what? Uh, you 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 just uh, created this much waste. You have to pay this much in tax. If you have a situation where Everybody, I mean, when I say everybody, everybody besides, I don't know, uh, you know, let, let's just pick a, a, a small country in Africa, um, Morocco. Let's just pick on them for a second, okay? Morocco decides they're not going to be a part of this game and uh, they're not a big producer. And, Ch and China says the same thing. It's not like we could sequester the emissions to just over China. So the way that I would answer that is let's focus on those countries. Instead of Morocco, let's focus on the ones that do care about the rule of law, the ones that that have laws against harm. You know, I can't steal your wallet without consequence. Similarly, if we find that the court of law agrees with the majority of the scientists that loads of emissions cause this sort of global warming, maybe I own a coal plant in Montana and you own a Florida property apartment, mm -hmm. and my coal emissions are reducing the value of your sea level 
property price. So we don't really have to solve this on a global level. We can solve this at a local level using common law. And if, if let's say the whole of the US was to adopt this common law approach, which would lead to a, a natural price on carbon, a market price on carbon, maybe it would be around $50 a tonne. There are lots of technologies for sequestering carbon. Then presumably that would lend itself very nicely to some sort of law that says you can't, you can't just outsource your emissions to China and you're still, you're still damaging my property price in Florida if you're burning coal in China. So at a, at a local country level, um, you could have some sort of border implementation that there's also no carbon emissions being imported at the border. That would mean that countries like China, you wouldn't have to force them to comply, but if they want to sell anything to the US, they would naturally have to to, to also be carbon neutral if they weren't breaking common law in the US to, mm. to do business in the US. Right. So I think it's, again, it's quite simple. We don't need the UN to solve this. Now, I know you can't talk about stocks. That's a you know big no-no when it comes to portfolio managers. But let's talk about bigger picture. Let's step back one notch. And let's talk about, uh, again, a further step back. Where is the future in alt energy? Is, is there going to be a break that people can get out of their head, Three Mile Island, Fukushima, and of course, uh, you know, any of the movies that had Jack Lemmon in it that, uh, you know, started with the China and ended with Syndrome about nuclear. I mean, we saw, I think, one plant in the United States come back online. It was some absurd amount of money to build this thing, by the way. Absurd. And, but nothing's been built really anywhere. I think Germany's trying to, they shut it down. Now they're talking about bringing it back online. Is there a particular area in sustainable energy that we really should be focusing on? Again, starting with the big picture, we have moved from a kind of biomass-based energy source, chopping down trees, using cattle to plow our fields. We then discovered fossil fuels, which were high energy density, which means we use less resources to achieve that, that same amount of energy, which prompted the Industrial Revolution and huge amounts of prosperity. And then going up that scale of energy density, we moved to oil and gas and then eventually nuclear power, which was incredibly energy dense. That whole industry has been very starved of capital because of the incidents you mentioned. But actually, the, the stats on deaths from nuclear are incredibly low. I think they might be lower than the wind industry. Um, so there's probably scope for more innovation to bring down the costs of nuclear energy. Maybe some of the regulations would have to be changed as well. But the key problem with renewables, and by the way, I'm not anti-renewables. I think there's, there's huge potential for them in the right places, but they are low energy density, meaning they are high resource intensity. Right. So we're going to have to like, dig up the soil, dig up the earth to produce these so-called sustainable products. And, and actually, the other problem is that they don't have enough grid inertia. So the voltage and frequency on the grid is not low enough. So we'll always need baseload power. So that's why I think the economics for nuclear should improve over time. Uh, and, uh, and actually, gas will probably play a, a transitional role. Um, but, but then, yeah, solar, solar panels are getting much, much cheaper. Um, so I think there's, it's, it's not going to be a one technology takes all. 
How does, uh, dare I bring this up? I don't know if I even should. Maybe, maybe, I don't know. When it comes to all this, I'm sure you're being inundated with pitches, because you get pitches, I'm sure, at your team, right? You get pitches, uh, and, 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 you know, during your research process. But how does uh, AI come <laughs> to play? I, I really don't know if I want to go this direction, because I'm, I'm kind of done on this AI discussion, because it, it, it was like this, this crazy thing that popped up out of nowhere, and now everybody just thinks it's going to solve every problem, but maybe it will. And when it comes to sustainability and, and by the way, can I just say I'm all for sustainability. I'm all for whether or not there is true climate change. I, I don't know. I mean, we, you know, we, we, we could look over long periods of time, short periods of time. We could look at trends. Bottom line, if we could do something that is better for the environment long-term though, without all the extra stuff about we're going to die in a nuclear holocaust in three years if we don't, you know, if, if we use any aerosols or something. You know, I mean, not that kind of crazy stuff. But, I mean, why not? If we could do something better, why not? I mean, there's just, just – it's stupid not to. Um, but my, my, my question is, d- does AI play any role in this? I'm assuming with maybe farming it does and food sustainability to a degree. It, it's funny that you mentioned farming, Andrew, because AI has two meanings – artificial intelligence but also artificial insemination oh <laughs> so ah, so we actually good point we actually have some exposure in the food security fund to to the theme of ai artificial insemination which is which is a really beneficial way of impre- increasing the the productivity and the health of livestock farming um so so maybe that's a slightly different take on on the answer you were expecting well it's a different but, i think i think the people that are using it are using different tools i'll tell you right now they are. They're using gloves. <laughs> oh, gosh. So, no, but I mean, I'm assuming also when it comes to farming, there's got to be some analysis of best way to, let's say, so you, so here, I'm just going to throw this out. You have this big farm of, I don't know, you're growing trees with apples on it. And you have now these automated apple pickers that are going out. And maybe with AI from the data that's being input into the find for the day, you know, the apples that are taken off um, with all the different automations being instantaneously and in real time put back to the AI. They may say, you know what, the, the three trucks that are automating on the South side, you know, it switch up and let's go to the North side. There's more apples that are more ripe at that level to take from the trees for today. Something like that, you know? Yeah, and there's companies working on that. I think that's a, a really cool opportunity, actually. I wouldn't necessarily call it AI. In fact, I think the AI thing is a bit of a misnomer because it's not artificial intelligence. It's augmented intelligence. Yeah. So so we're just simply continuing on this multi-decade theme of digitalization, using data to, to make better judgments, better signals to, to inform what we what we do with our limited resources. Yeah. Um, AI is a, is a great theme. I think there's there's huge opportunity in the semiconductor theme on a long term um, because there's just so much comp- competition in that area, ge- geographical competition, but also just your traditional corporate competition. And, and, and that will continue to produce better tools for us to be more efficient with resources. Um, I think it, it's it, it, that that digitalization trend also supports the automation theme, which will help us in a rapidly aging population. China's birth rate—I forget the stats—but I think it's I think China's expecting something like 
eight to 10 million births uh, next year relative to a population north of a billion. So it's absolutely tiny um, birth rate. So they're going to need automation to to keep these factories operating. Oh, maybe they without, need maybe they need maybe. AI. Exactly. <laughs> they, they do. So I want to so bottom line is I'm starting a glove company, by the way, just to let you know. All right. <laughs> Good plan. Make sure they're thick. <laughs> it's all the time we got uh, all the time we have for today uh, with Robbie, Robbie Miles. Uh, thanks for joining us all the way from uh, the UK. Grand old time. Have a Guinness this afternoon. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Cheers, Andrew. Great to chat. All right, thanks. thanks a lot. And our guest now who is back with us and hasn't been with us for a while is our good friend Das. He's an internationally respected expert in finance with over 37, you old man, 37 years of experience. He's uh, he's, he's anticipated so many aspects of the global financial crisis, many of them, but especially the one in 2006 that led up to 2007, 8, 9. Um, and he also proved accurate in warnings about the ineffectiveness of policy response and the, the risk of growth. Great guy, great uh, discussion, and uh, hard to get because he is very busy. Doesn't like to repeat himself. Das, thanks for joining me. It's my pleasure. We got to talk about. I think start the conversation today with you about. Uh, you know, it's been talked about, but let's let's kind of talk about it from your aspect. The the area of inflation, right? It's something that it's the genie that's out of the bottle. It's the issue that's very concerning. It's the thing that makes us all weep. It's the thing that's causing, I think, many of the strikes, which are creating more inflation. You know. They talk about the cure for the, the best cure for higher prices is higher prices, which is like the only thing that uh, salt doesn't corrode is salt, right? You know, you've heard that. And what is it that is going to actually, how, how is it going to play out as you see it? And, and where are we going in terms of the global inflation conundrum? Well, I think firstly, I think we may have seen the low in terms of inflation, no. So, in fact, what I suspect is that inflation rates are going to stabilize at around current levels mm -hmm. and may actually increase for a lot of reasons. But let's go back a little bit in time because I think it's important to look at inflation in the process from 2008 onwards. Because remember, after 2008, the world faced the specter of deflation. Yeah. And deflation is disastrous when you have too much debt because basically your revenues and taxes start to fall and people don't buy things because they defer it because it's going to be cheaper tomorrow. And all of those factors led to the central banks and governments trying to boost inflation. Now, they failed for the better part of about uh, 14 years in doing that. But it's important to go back and see how they tried to do it. And the way they tried to do it was by basically boosting government spending and also cutting interest rates to record lows and also obviously pumping liquidity through things like quantitative easing into the system. Now, that didn't work, but eventually it started to have an impact. And it's interesting to look at what happened and why it happened. Now, if you actually look at the low interest rates and the government spending, it basically acts through demand. But frankly, demand wasn't that great through 2008 to 2014. It was okay, but it wasn't great. And more importantly, there was massive supply on the other side, particularly from places like China, which have massive overcapacity. But the pandemic sort of shifted that around. And basically what happened 
was suddenly supply constraints hit. And if you actually look at that moment, what happened was demand and supply got completely out of whack. And that's when we started to see inflation. Now, the reason I don't think inflation is either over or likely to go back to the ranges that the central banks would like is pretty straightforward. Because if you actually look at the data, uh, actually, there's a nice new phrase, which is a nice new meme. It's called TLDR, too long, didn't read. Now, I find most people <laughs> in financial markets never actually read anything. You know, they just look at their tweet headline yeah, and that's about it. Headlines are important, yeah. Headlines are extremely important <laughs> and, and basically headlines are only designed as clickbait. So it doesn't really make any difference whether you read it or not. But the critical thing is the slowing in inflation was driven by a couple of things. One is easing demand as pandemic savings got run down. But most importantly, energy and food prices, which if you remember, energy prices went well over $100 mm -hmm. and they eased. Now, what I now think is going to happen is going forward, on the demand side, you're not going to get consumption retrenching. And the reason for that is pretty straightforward, is employment markets are reasonably strong around the world. In fact, if you look at it, they're the strongest globally that they have been for 15, 20 years. Yeah. And government deficits, I mean, the US government's running a 5% deficit, which is projected to grow. And that's being driven by things like the energy transition, subsidies for strategic manufacturing like semiconductors. This is this famous reshoring -ing process. And I think the new phrase is de-risking. And also the other thing which is becoming more and more important is essentially defense spending is going to go through the roof because essentially the world is moving to a war footing. And all of that is going to add to demand. So Demand is not coming down, but at the same time, the input pressures that we were talking about haven't eased. And the first one is, I mean, energy prices have always been volatile, so I don't tend to look at day-to-day -day fluctuations, which are impossible to sort of work out. But fundamentally, it's being driven by production cuts and or another way of putting it, of control of production by people like Saudi Arabia and it's Russia. Manip manipulation of prices. I mean, that's very simple. Correct. I mean, they, they, they like to they like to look at it as a and make it and couch it as a, a, a betterment for the world by conservation or balancing. Right? You know the old balancing discussion. Where they, right? Absolutely. And <laughs> but the, the reality is Saudi Arabia needs a lot of money for its transition away from fossil fuels, and Russia needs money to be able to keep its military activities going. So they're going to try to get the price, I think, to stay well above 80. And the other thing is everybody's saying, well, China's slowing, so fuel demand will go down. I actually don't think it will, because people forget that the US military is the world's largest single consumer as a business. They consume about 1 million barrels, so roughly, say, 1% of global oil production a day. And obviously, they're not alone. And all these wars and conflicts are going to chew up you know, um, the, oil consumption, uh, the oil production pretty quickly. As I said to somebody the other day, I still don't know that Tesla makes a fighter jet, which you can plug in at ah, night. So right. it's going to be gas. Or, 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 or for that matter, uh, you know, there's no Rivian uh, air, aircraft carrier. Exactly. And I don't think people quite get 
that the 1974-like oil embargo is not beyond the realms of possibility here. And so I think we're going to see a lot of pressure come into the supply side of the equation. And there are other elements as well. One is food prices, uh, because essentially Ukraine and Russia are out of the global food market and extreme weather is causing problems in food production. And the other thing is a number of countries like India with rice exports, Thailand with rice exports, are basically now restricting those exports because they're prioritizing their domestic requirements. And commodity prices like for copper will be underpinned by the energy transition. And don't forget commodities, you need a lot of commodities to make weaponry. So that's going to be underpinned. And by the way, you and, just, and, and in the end, you just blow it up. Yeah, and, and they're single use. <laughs> right? They're single right, use. Yeah. Uh, sustainable. Single use things. Oh, that's what we need, a sustainable weapons. Exactly. And uh, the other thing is that they would be Alfred Sloan's wet dream, wouldn't they? You know, completely disposable and replaceable. Yeah, you know, he yeah, should yeah. have been in the armaments business, not in the motor car businesses. <laughs> so I essentially think that you're going to see those. And the last one is, I actually think manufactured goods may ease in prices because of Chinese excess capacity. But the big problem is in Western economies, it's all services, which are largely labor costs Mm -hmm. and an aging population and skills shortages are going to keep driving salaries higher, not in real terms, but in nominal terms. And that generates a wage price feedback loop. And the last, the, the, the real problem is going to be housing markets. Because affordability is at record lows. Housing prices keep going up. It's ridiculous. And they're going to feed inflation. And so, and actually we saw that in the print last night at the CPI. And the other one, which is interesting, I don't know about your insurance bills, but uh, rising insurance costs due to extreme weather are going to feed through. And then there's uh, the global conflicts like the Sino-American tit-for-tat trade restrictions on technology and rare earths. All of that is going to underpin inflation. The last one is all this business about reshoring and relocating production facilities is actually very bad for inflation because it adds to higher costs because what you are now getting is inefficient operational scale of lots of facilities around the world or people keeping higher inventories. So all of that is going to underpin inflation for the foreseeable future. And I don't think people have quite got that yet because they keep, you know, the old transitory, you know, the central bank's transitory inflation. People keep saying, you know, it's going to go down. And I keep saying, "Mm, maybe. It doesn't matter. Listen, it doesn't matter if it goes down. It's it's, Even if we go to zero from here on out, prices staying the way they are. And one of the things you mentioned, one of the things you mentioned was about about the the insurance companies. One one of the things that's happening inside the financial area is that the impact of higher rates and a, a, a wonky yield curve, to be even polite about it, is causing all sorts of problems. One of the reasons your insurance is going up is not only due to losses and things of that matter and risk, and it's also due to the fact that the insurance company's portfolio that backs up the 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 um, ability for them to pay, the money that they earn on their portfolio is not doing so well because they got crushed. Banks got crushed. Now, if they hold to maturity, okay, that's great. Some of them will do fine. But you know what? I don't know about you. The idea of, and thought of having... Uh, X amount of dollars if I was a, a insurance company at two percent when I could see it at five and a half percent and having a twenty percent reduction in the value of my bond holdings due to the fact that prices moved away from me 
it's a real problem for them, and that's why they're raising rates. But what is going on, and how is this all feeding into the banking industry? Because one thing I'll just mention, and I think we all know, that the Fed is really a, I don't want to say an arm of, but is a supporter of the banking industry in a big way, right? That's their big goal, aside from economies. How is this all going to play out? Well, I think uh, just on your point about the Fed and the banks, essentially the Fed's in the business of supplying credit to the economy and banks are the arm they do it through. So you're quite correct. There's a symbiotic relationship between the two. But what you're touching on is really very important because if inflation stays high and interest rates stay high, then the question is, what do those higher rates, if they stay high for a prolonged period, due to asset prices like bonds and also financial stability. And what I hear now or read now is apparently the banking issues that emerged earlier this year are all fixed. They've all gone away. Yeah, magic. And I'm sort of sitting here scratching my head saying the first thing is long-term rates are much higher than they were when Silicon Valley Bank and the others collapsed. And the mark-to-market losses on those bond holdings are actually now larger than they were in around that March-April period when we had the first sort of round of problems. If you just look at one of the bond indexes and say, okay, well, how much have they fallen in the last six months to 12 months? You've got $9 trillion of losses globally. So that's not a small amount. And if I look at the banking sector, deposit outflows are continuing. They're flowing out to money market funds. And They're caught between a rock and a hard place. They either lose deposits or they push up their interest rates, in which case they have to push up lending rates even further, or they have to take a major earnings hit. And the big thing that I think nobody's factoring in is these higher rates will inevitably lead to loan losses from defaults because companies were smart. They termed out their debt for a while there, but they're going to be forced to refinance at a certain stage over the next two to three years. And if interest rates stay higher, they'll be lumbered with high borrowing costs. And obviously, if the economy slows, those debt write-offs could be higher. And there was an interesting study done by the Fed a little while ago, which showed from 2008 to about, I think it's 2021, they ended their study. If you looked at corporate profitability, one of the big factors which underpinned the rise in profitability was zero interest rates because they just didn't have to pay for debt. So I think the banking sector's problems are not resolved, but that's part of a a real problem in asset markets because stocks have done very well the last six months. At least if you bought AI stocks, they've done well. They haven't done well for anything else. But And residential property has done, but they're all overvalued. We've been saying this for 15 years. They're all overvalued by any fundamental measures. And I think higher interest rates are like sort of the – the virus, which tests your immune system. And basically, weaker businesses, which have low or no cash flow and are reliant on constantly raising money, are going to be very vulnerable. And I wrote earlier this year about, you know, some other areas of vulnerability, things like venture and early stage capital. They're going to take write-offs of between 50 and 80% on their last round fundings. Private markets have problems. Leveraged finance, well, you know, if you've leveraged yourself eight to one, and interest rates go up, it'll be interesting to see how you do. And shadow banking, the structured products, right. all those vulnerabilities remain. And we're starting to see little signs of that again, in particularly in commercial real estate, where there have been problems. 
And a lot of funds are now having troubles they're closing or merging because they're unable to navigate these choppy trading conditions. And to me, they're harbingers of troubles ahead. So you're absolutely correct. I think these higher interest rates will flow through. And your example of insurance companies is absolutely right because they've taken a bath. Yeah. They've taken an yeah. absolute bath yeah. on their yeah. investments. And they're not, and you can hide them all you like, you know, available for sale, hold to maturity. You can play all sorts of games. A loss is a loss. And people forget that the biggest losers here, nobody wants to talk about, is the central banks who bought under their QE programs massive amounts of bonds. And I think the Fed has uh, actually got negative equity, though they had a lovely little accounting fudge. Apparently, it wasn't negative equity. It was money that the government owed them which is oh. kind of interesting. Oh. So a loss became an asset, which I thought was a rather interesting piece of Left accounting. pocket, right pocket works great. It works perfectly every time. Absolutely. <laughs> but the other central banks have been a bit more honest. They've written it down and most of them have massive But it losses. doesn't matter. Now, At the end of the day, it does create more money anyway. But how does this now exactly. all, how does this all, or does this, I should say, does this all lead into some of the things that we're seeing, the cropping up, of issues around the world where we have maybe either, for example, um, over the last number of years, the populism things got started and the, the hard left, the hard right, and that spreading to other countries around the world, or maybe even the conflicts in um, areas that are uh, around the world, and whether it's what's going on maybe in Israel right now, what's going on potentially in in um, in, in, in some Asian areas and you know the, the concern about Taiwan and is the geopolitical situation, do you think, was sparked further a product of or just uh, an evolution of what has been going on anyway with regard to the inflation? Because I was thinking that the higher prices getting everybody cranky. Well, I think you have to separate two things out, the, uh, the domestic social issues. And I certainly think that uh, – higher prices, which basically means your living standards are going backwards, which is happening around the world. It's not unique to any particular country. Certainly don't make people happy because the great social contract between uh, the uh, people who run us and the people who are uh, basically ordinary people is that as long as you make us rich and give us a lifestyle yeah, yeah. so we can have 30 yeah. streaming services <laughs> and be able to watch the Kardashians or whoever every night, uh, that's all fine. But the yeah, moment we'll, we'll, forgive your, we'll forgive your shortfalls. Absolutely. But <laughs> once you lose that, it becomes really problematic. And what, what has compounded that in terms of domestic politics is the real underlying problems here, which is things like growth, debt, all of the things like a social uh, state promises that governments have made, which they can't meet, basically aren't soluble because everything that would even attempt to solve them will be very painful. And no politician in their right mind is going to do anything that's painful to the electorate. So they've diverted attention into culture wars. Because, you know, you can't solve the problem. So what do you do? You create a false issue where you can create a divide between your side and the other side. And you can argue about that little cows come home. And nobody's ever going to agree on anything. But it allows you to sort of manipulate to get back into power. So basically, all these issues have been sort of shunted to one side. But I think that's domestic and that's going to go on for a while. I mean, I don't live in the States and I watch US politics with 
uh, basically, it's the best reality television show. Oh, it's a comedy that, that it's, I've it's ever a, seen. It's a comedy from back. It's like the Three Stooges are, are back. Well, no, the Three Stooges actually had a purpose. That's the only difference, I <laughs> right. think, between okay. American politics and that. But anyway, leaving that to one side, the geopolitical things are, I think, a little different. But I think they're really unresolved issues. For instance, if you look at the Ukraine war and what's going on in Eastern Europe and in Eurasia, this is really fallouts from the breakup of the Soviet Union, which is now 34 years ago. Mm-hmm. And the Israel-Palestine is, this has been going on for 100 years since the Balfour Declaration, and it certainly won't be fixed in my time. And it's a question of what the intensity of the military conflict is from time to time. So these have all been there. I mean, the Chinese uh, problem in Southeast Asia with uh, the South China Sea and its relationship with everybody else, these are all rooted in history. But what they do is they're getting hotter and they're getting hotter because this sort of dominance of the US in the unipolar world is slackening. Mm. And so other people feel emboldened to do certain things. And to be very honest, you know, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia have realized that the power of their energy uh, production is great. China has realized it's the factory of the world. And basically, it can do whatever it wants to some degree. And the US is terrified about its economic power waning. And so all of these things are playing in. But you know, I'm not an armchair general. You know, I, every day I watch them, there's <laughs> armchair generals and talk show, you know, military strategists uh, who are pontificating. Look, I don't know. I just don't want to be shot. That's that's my basic problem problem in life. I don't want to be shot. Yes. You're fighting somebody else's the, war. The, that's the, my basic problem. This whole the, listen, I call all the people on CNBC given the the false sense of knowledge of what is really happening. I call them schmuckalucks. Same thing with all these uh, other- Schmuckalucks is a good phrase. I call them useful idiots. Yeah. Because it, it, useful in the sense they fill up uh, airtime right. and make everybody feel like they're informed. But if you, if you, if you think no of it idea. as entertaining and maybe some information, you're in great shape. Um, otherwise, it gets a little bit crazy. But when it comes to this geopolitical issue, I mean, there's a lot more riding on it right now in terms of uh, different uh, different areas around the world. I mean, look at it as businesses, right? So- all these yep. businesses, because that's what we are, right? You, you take this area, this, you know, we take China, you take Taiwan, you take, um, you know, areas of Europe and, and, and each and every country. Everybody has their own specialty of what they do. Uh, and we consume, right. you know, we, we consume. And a lot of what's happening right now with the cost of uh, items, like, for example, what, what Saudi Arabia is doing with their supposed need to constrain production for whatever the reason is, which is nothing more than a manipulation of, of, of pricing, in my opinion. It's causing this, um, it's causing us to, to have issues with, with, with cost related to all sorts of things. And um, we had a guest on, just the last guest, which we talked about, you know, sustainability and, and looking at, um, you know, where we're going with, in terms of alternative energies. Is, is this going to be continuing in to be, uh, a holdout. India is, I think, they're not selling their onions or something like that. And and, and you mentioned. Oh, if if you have a shortage of onions in India, it's the end of the world. It's a problem. It's a problem. It's it's the end of the world. Yeah. But 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 to to a large extent, you have to understand why that it's the end of the world. Uh, most people have no idea of how forty to fifty percent of Indian rural life functions, and their basic meal is chapatis, which is bread. And onions, 
and tomatoes. That's all they eat. Mm. And so, and they have some lentils, uh, but that's about it. I mean, meat and, and fish and stuff are not that common. And so if onion goes up in price and things like vegetable oil prices go up, then essentially there's a huge political problem in India. But just coming back to your point about the geopolitics, look, I don't know the trajectory of these geopolitical uh, conflicts. All I know is it's unpredictable because I just look at how accurate or inaccurate predictions have been. I, I just look at Ukraine and I've been hearing that the Russians are out of ammunition and they won't be able to continue the war for the last year. And I keep say, uh, saying to people, haven't they run out of ammunition yet? Yeah. You know, I was told they, they ran out of ammunition a year ago, but they keep bombarding everybody. So what happens? And so I have no idea. It's, it's out of, it's above my pay grade. But what I do know is they're going to actually aggravate some stresses in markets. One is inflation, which is what you were talking about. Inflation is not coming down. You know, wars are inflationary and geopolitical conflict is inflationary. The second, which people don't talk about, is public finances. Now, government spending is going to be affected by war. And it's not matched by higher tax revenues. I mean, US government debt's now just under 100%. And in the next couple of years, it'll rise to a post-World uh, War II high. And interest costs, if interest rates stay around these same levels, are going to rise to about, you know, around about the mid-teens, say 15% of federal outlays. Now, that's not that's money you don't have for other things like Medicare, Medi-Aid, social programs, everything else. And it's going to become the largest single government expense item. So it's going to affect that. And the last people are missing here, which I think is very important, is de-dollarization. Whether you like it or not. De-dollarization. This is something that has also been discussed for a very long period of time. Correct. And I actually don't think it's going to happen, but it's going to uh, have some influence. And let me explain. Let me back up a stage. If you actually look at things like Ukraine and the Middle East and China, what it's doing is it's dividing the world. Because I don't know what coverage you get in the States, but I can assure you most of the world don't support the Western stance in support of Ukraine, and they probably have sympathy for the Palestinians. And so under those circumstances, the world is now being broken up. And you saw a sign of that at the BRICS, recent BRICS uh, meeting. And China obviously is doing a good job manipulating that to get a uh, much more high profile and influential geopolitical role. But the crucial thing here that underlies this is there is going to be a shift away from the dollar for trade and reserve assets. And the reason is the divide, but it's more fundamental than that. The American sanctions on Russia and China, but more importantly, the seizure of Russian assets, including central bank assets, which is unheard of. Actually, that to me is like a default on the dollar, because basically you're saying, I'm not going to honor my currency, essentially. That's what they're saying. Now, it's impossible to replace the dollar in the short term, but you're going to see non-dollar currencies essentially become more important, and that's going to fragment global capital movement. And America, I think, is going to face increasing difficulties in financing its budget and trade deficit, which, by the way, is approaching 10%. It's about 8%. And in my estimate, if you total the trade deficit and the budget deficit, it won't be too far short of 10%. And by the way, in the old days, when I used to deal in emerging markets, once the combined budget and trade deficit hit 10%, 
disaster loomed. And it was interesting to look at the downgrade by Fitchers of the US. And I read the whole ratings rationale very carefully. The language they used was the language I used to see they used to use with emerging markets. Yeah, they have a in bunch of words, knuckleheads in charge. That was exactly. The, yeah. Basically, they said there's no institutions that function. <laughs> Politics is uh, basically divided, and there's corruption everywhere. And I said, this is like reading about oh, the yeah. Conquer. No question. There's it's no just question. kind of crazy. Yeah. So, and don't forget, one third of U.S. government debt is financed outside of the United States. And to date, that has been a bit of a problem because with, with higher interest rates, domestic funds and individuals and high net worth individuals have been buying bonds. But the Chinese are reducing their holdings of U.S. dollars. Dramatically over the last 10 years. And the last, I think, two years has been a hockey stick down on that. But at the same time, you know, everybody's worried about Japan. And the fact is that some of the selling of, of central bank assets by other countries does set up the potential for mutually assured destruction. That's the only problem. Well, exactly. I agree with you. I, that's why I don't think it's going to happen, simply because essentially if China tried to offload their trillion dollars of securities, mm-hmm. they would take a bath. Yeah. And they'd have another problem as well. If you sell US dollars, you have to do something. Otherwise, you'll push up the value of the one, which makes them uncompetitive. So they're not going to do that. But what I think is important to understand is all prices are made at the margin. So if the marginal buyer goes away, prices go up. And that's what you're going to see with interest rates. It's going to put a lot of pressure on interest rates over time. And so I think the geopolitics feeds in. And somebody said to me, what do you think the risk of the third, uh, third world war is? I said, I have no idea. But if there is a third world war, the last thing I would be thinking about is interest rates, inflation, and what happens to asset prices. I would be thinking of other things. Yeah, you're not going to be collecting. So, you're not going to be collecting on it if you're right. By the way, correct, exactly. Uh, <laughs> you know? That's exactly right. That so you know, basically, it's kind of a meaningless discussion. So mm-hmm. my assumption is that there will be conflicts and they will heat up. They will cool down. They'll heat up. None of these geopolitical conflicts will be solved in my lifetime. When, when, when but you, they will when feed you look through at, inflation. When you look at all the things, let's kind of finish up on this. When you look at everything out there, and, and let's try to bring in two sides to this, if, if it's possible. If you look at all the things that are going on and the potential for, uh, you know, we could always talk about the potential for bad things happening. What's the one thing that really is like, oh, you know, this is something I'm really worried about. And then on the other hand, you know, here here's some potential good news. Well, I think there's a couple of things which are going on because one thing that always puzzles me is when you look at the news and it's bad, people immediately go into a deep funk and sort of start to, basically throw a tantrum, you know, a two-year-old tantrum. But my point is you can make money under any circumstances. And there's a couple of areas which I think are very important now. One is scarcity. We're, we're moving from an age of abundance to an age of scarcity. So there's going to be a premium for certain things like certain transition critical metals and also certain technologies that people are going to need going forward. And also, the other thing is, you now use that as a filter to think about companies. For instance, um, I look at companies with high exposure to places like China and go, hmm, interesting. You know, mm-hmm. is that sustainable? So you start to use this as a filter to effectively go through. And the other obvious one is defense industries, because look, you know, if everybody moves their defense spending up, there's got to be somebody 
who's basically buying up the stuff and somebody who's selling it. So there are opportunities here, but it's just a very different environment. I don't think you can sort of lie back in bed having bought an ETF on the S&P 500 and leveraged it and gone to sleep like Rip Van Winkle for 20 years and wake up and start to scream running naked up and down the street that I'm rich. That's not <laughs> going to happen anymore. And I think that it's a challenge. And the other thing I would say is while there is bad news, civilizations are extremely resilient. And even if the system sort of is in turmoil, it's a system with 8 billion people in it, 8 billion living souls, and also a very complex civilization. It's not going to collapse overnight. It's not going to collapse. And I always phrase it in terms of what's your time horizon? And mine is my lifetime. I don't really care after that. That's somebody else's problem. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Das, always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today, going over the, the, the some of the obvious and not so obvious things that are really, I think, building up in the background, bubbling and, and, and uh, you know, causing a well, simmering, I guess is the best way to describe it. Which, by the way, sometimes simmers turn into a boil, sometimes it is simmer, right? Let's be honest. Yeah. Well, it depends on how good a cook you are. Well, yes, clearly, you know. But anyway, thanks for joining me. We'll do it again sometime. It's my pleasure. Thanks. Right. Thanks, us. Well, that's going to be a wrap for this show. Two for the price of one. Went a little bit longer than usual, but good information for both Robbie and Das. And I think that uh, we can both and all agree that uh, there's a lot of issues out there, but there's a lot of opportunity for solutions as well. Thanks so much for joining me this week. Hope you learned a lot. I did. And I'm going to look at that to implement in portfolio some of the ideas that were brought to me today, as a matter of fact. Hopefully that's what you're going to be doing as well. Thanks for joining me once again. I'll see you again next week. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company. <laughs>